Welcome to Project Chatter, the podcast where PPM experts from various sectors talk about the latest trends. Listen to Val and Dale as they talk about tried and tested best practices and share their unfiltered thoughts about the industry. Whether you're here to learn how to progress your career, improve your project control skills, or just want to hear an Aussie and South African rant about projects, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Project Chatter podcast with your hosts, Dale Fung and Val Matthews. This podcast is brought to you by Innate. We hear it from our podcast guests frequently. Today's capital projects require the highest degree of visibility. That's why we at the Project Chatter podcast want to tell you about construction project management software from Innate. It's software that integrates every aspect of your project and puts you in control. Innate's cloud-based solutions provide a connected data flow that improves efficiency and guides better outcomes across the entire project lifecycle. See what Innate software can do for your next construction project. Learn more at innate.com. That's I-N-E-I-G-H-T dot com. This podcast is brought to you by Plan Academy. Plan Academy is the world's leading learning site for anyone working in construction, project management, or project controls. At Plan Academy, you learn construction, planning, and scheduling theory, how to master scheduling software like Primavera P6, and even advanced construction scheduling techniques. Plan Academy's courses are 100% online and at your own pace. You can learn at the office, at site, from home, anywhere. Get $75 off any Plan Academy course by visiting planacademy.com forward slash chatter that's planacademy.com forward slash c-h-a-t-t-e-r hey everyone this episode is brought to you by justdo.com justdo is a great business and project management tool we've been using here at project chatter i agree val i like to keep things simple and justdo is perfect for that but i do know it's got a lot of powerful functionality as well and one of my favorites is the task specific chat Absolutely. And for all you slackers, don't wait for Monday. Check out justdo.com. Now on with the pod. Hello, project people. You're listening to the Project Chatter podcast, your number one trusted source of project experts in audio form. I'm your host, Val Matthews, and I am joined by my co-host, Dale Fung. Well, I love how every podcast you change that intro. Um, It's great, isn't it? Every, Every podcast, something new. It's brilliant. And I guess you're right. In in our eyes, we are number one. It doesn't matter what everyone else thinks. So Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Optimism helps. Exactly. Um, I'm with you, mate. And uh, just a reminder to our listeners to hit that subscribe button on whichever platform you listen to your good podcasts on. And don't forget to check out our YouTube channel for the po- full podcast, sorry, and our guest bonus Q&A. And if you'd like to sponsor the Project Chatter podcast, you can get in touch with us via our website, Project Chatter Podcast. Com. Now, in this pod, we are joined by Mr. Jonathan, aka Jono Norman of the Major Projects Association to talk about the advantages or perhaps the disadvantages of uh, project management communities of practice. Hi, Jono. Welcome to the show. Thank you ever so much. I was, I was really the my imposter syndrome kicked in when you started talking about being the number one source. I thought, oh, no, oh, oh, no. no I'm on the wrong stuff on the wrong show. <laughs> Number two today, then, hey. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever makes you feel good. Um, welcome on the show. It's, it's, it's great Thank to you. have you on. Um, it's a special show as well. I don't know if Dale knows this, but this is episode 60. So happy 60th. This is a very significant milestone. People are still listening to us. It's crazy. Three seasons. Uh, and, and what better way than to celebrate it with Jono? So before we get into the subject matter, John, uh, here is Dale with your bio. Thank you, Val. Uh, this is a great bio. Um, so listen to this. 
after a 30-year career in business book publishing in which Jonathan commissioned books covering every aspect of project program and portfolio management he joined the major projects association as knowledge manager to help manage the launch of their knowledge hub now nearly four years on with the hub fully integrated into the association's activities their approach to knowledge sharing and developing communities of practice has grown almost beyond recognition Jonathan's role in sustaining this activity has changed too and continues to do so as they adapt to new technology and the lessons they draw from their membership. Wow. Um, I don't know if there's a better marriage of guest and, and the Project Chatter podcast because we're all about sharing information um, and making it accessible to the masses. And so we are truly humbled to have you on the show, Jono. Thank you so much. Uh, how are you feeling? I'm feeling good. Was that did I did I write that, Dale? Did, is that the biography I wrote? Or? Whether you wrote it uh, or someone else wrote it, it is amazing. Um, but it is the one that you did send through. Um, yeah. It is truly amazing, and that experience is something that you know it, it's it's very difficult to replicate. So, like I say, mm. we are truly honoured to have you on the show. Thank you. Um, but maybe let's. Um, before we get into communities of practice, if we may, just in terms of that book publishing um, experience, what was that yeah. like? I mean, you must have seen a fair amount of books in your time and and read quite a few. I see you got quite a few in your background there as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what what is? I mean, in, in in your experience, having read all of these, what has been the evolution, or perhaps not, and what has been the trends in in changes um, that you've come across just in your career? Gosh, that's a that's a big question. Um, <laughs> I, I I have I have read quite a lot, and I've absorbed quite a lot. Uh, maybe I've read a bit of a manuscript, even if I haven't read the the complete book. Um, and and it's it's it really set me up for the career I do now because I have lots of little bits of knowledge from across different areas of management that I've kind of just snuck away in, into my brain, um, including including project management. Um, and I think I think the big change that I saw over my book publishing career was, you know, we went very much from a sort of technical books were very a technical source of information to books and and business books being a a kind of um, nonfiction pleasure read. So so people you know they'd start off by learning about some aspect of business and management or engineering or project controls. Um, and, and nowadays, um, you know, the, the big selling business books are the kinds of things that business and other people will pick up and read for pleasure. And, and, and that's, I suppose, in terms of content, that's been the, the kind of big difference. And, and then in terms of um, technology, obviously the, the internet has just changed book publishing and changed business book publishing out of all recognition. Um, when when I started, I, I, well, the first real publisher I worked for was was Gower Publishing, and I worked there for twenty six years. And and when I started, Gower had an amazing model, which was, you know, we published in hardback and we did huge amounts of direct marketing, and we sold direct to the business market. So if you needed a handbook on sales management or you needed something on um, project controls, then you'd get a piece of direct mail through your business letterbox 
and you say great and you'd send off the and and it would come directly to your desk and and in a sense we anticipated amazon and the internet in that way of course when amazon and the internet came along <laughs> it kind of <laughs> disrupted the model um but it was it was a great great business to work in and and just fascinating working with authors and working with ideas no that's 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 truly amazing um and you you're right it it has grown so much and i i i think just you know we've had the privilege obviously of speaking with various people across the globe just in the project space um but there's so much not i i think we've said it before the problem with books is that there's just too many of them <laughs> you can't read all of them so it's which which are the best ones and um it, it's great just to get a bit of an overview of, as to how you know things are developing from uh from, from that aspect um from what's being published but that's great okay so let's jump in then fast forward we're you know with the major projects association um you are the knowledge manager there um and the knowledge hub we'll talk about but before we go that far what is the major projects association for those that haven't heard of it yeah yes um, so we are uh, an association of just under 100 member organizations. Um, so we only have organizational members. We don't have any individual members. Um, and it's organizations, 99% of which are based in the UK, who are working on major projects, which in our terms are complex projects. So complexity is, is the idea behind major projects. Um, and we're basically, we're a community of practice. I mean, we've been running for 40 years this year. Um, our tagline is, is connecting people, sharing experience and improving major projects, which is kind of a community of practice. And um, up until quite recently, that was fundamentally done in the physical world. So that was done through um, a whole range of face-to-face -face events you know we'd have 100 or 120 people meeting at the institute of civil engineers in in london for a whole day event um, of great content of networking of interacting with each each other um, and more recently since pandemic hit um, we've really started to explore and exploit the the online and the virtual environment and the opportunities that allows for us to to extend our reach um, which is one of the things i found most interesting and dare i say it most most enjoyable about the last sort of 18 months or so yeah we do need every now and again these sort of challenges to you know mix things up a little bit and yeah. um yeah sometimes routine is great but sometimes it can become a bit monotonous so yes um it i i, I do welcome some of the changes but i do miss some of the the old routine things that we were, were sort of doing like going to the pub perhaps um, yes yes <laughs> yeah no i agree with you yeah but no fantastic thanks for for sharing that and then okay let's move on to uh the knowledge hub what what is the knowledge hub I mean, how does that fit into to everything? Yeah, so so it started um, when we launched in 2017. It started as a knowledge repository because the members had said, "We think we should have somewhere communal that we can go where we where there's a you know there's a hub of of knowledge on major projects because it's all over the place and it's hard to find and and we should be actually encouraging knowledge management, encouraging knowledge sharing and 
since we were the, the association that represented a, a lot of these organizations, we were a natural home for that. And like so many organizations, we kind of started with the repository. You know, you start being project managers, you start with the with the content and you start with the tech. Um, and in the, I guess, the four years since then, we've gradually become more and more social. So, so the social, the human interaction um, has now really eclipsed the importance of the hub. So the, the repository is still there on the Major Projects Association. Um, we add, constantly add new insight to it. And we're about to be connecting via an API to the HS2 learning legacy, which will kick off in April, which will be a great source of, of new content and new insight. Um, but really, um, the, the hub and the repositories is a kind of, it's more about events and interaction and conversation, really, um, than it is about content. I think is that, in terms of, yeah is that freely accessible to everyone yeah um so so you can you can find it on on the major projects association web, website which is www.majorprojects.org um, and just go to the knowledge section and all of the content on there is searchable it's free to download you're free to share it it's it's open to all fantastic we'll add that to the show notes as well um, but over yeah. to you Val no, that's great. And I, I was just re- I was actually looking at your website while we were talking because I, I was multi, multitasking uh, and, and it does look very inviting. And that's, I guess, one of the things we wanted to get you on board about was was talking about communities of practices. And whilst, the, you know, they are communities and they, they do practice, they're not as common as I'd like them to be or as frequent as they should be. Um, and, and maybe it's because not everyone knows what a, a community of practice is. Uh, I was just Googling as well. You know, it's a common interest in a specific technical or business domain, which Okay, so how do you go about, so my question, I guess, Jonathan, is, is more about how do we go about uh, bringing or attracting people into communities of practice? How do we, because everyone's busy doing stuff and we're not, we're not sure if we're doing the right things, but we do definitely fill the time, whether we like it or not, and calendars get full and you have uh, personal commitments. How can we make uh, communities of practice more attractive? That's a good question, Val. I think it's a bit counterintuitive because um, when we put the when we talk about communities of practice, um, particularly to people who who haven't necessarily heard of them or haven't been involved in a community of practice, there's a certain sense of oh I don't know what that is. What is a community of practice? But but actually the reality is we all know what a community of practice is. We all have our own communities of practice. We have our own LinkedIn network. We have in our own network at work are the people that we kind of go to for help or advice or um and 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 the people in our wider professional network who we can ring up and say look how would you do this can you and and they'll recommend they'll say you know i don't know but i know somebody who does so so actually um Mm. intuitively and naturally as humans um, and particularly in in the kind of now that we've learned to deal with the digital world we create our own little mini um and sometimes quite large communities of practice so I think it's important to recognize that because certainly when I've talked to a number of organizations about community of practice, they kind of overlook the fact that they're probably already doing it. They, they sort of say, right, we need to, how do we need to set up a community of practice? And I'm thinking, well, start with what you're already doing. Um, there was a, 
I think it was about 2013, um, I found on the internet, there was an organization called Carter, which was some sort of, um, some sort of uh, virtual trading company that, you know, did um, equity trading or, um, and they did a, a little poll of all their 300 odd employees. And they asked them a series, I think three questions, which are basically, um, when you need support, you know, when you're feeling, I really need some help, I'm, I'm just feeling, who do you go to in your organization? When you need some information, some knowledge, who do you go to? And there was a third question. I can't remember what the third question was. Um, and they allowed people to, to kind of not just indicate one person, but indicate two or three people. Um, and then they did a, a network diagram. And it was fantastic because they found, first thing they found was that the people that most of their employees were going to were not the heads of department or, or the board directors. Um, yeah. It was a real mix of people. The other thing that they found was that um, when they looked at the top 10 um, people nominated within their organization of what, 300 people, um, those top 10 people were connected to 70% of the employees within the organization. And wow. so I think I'm a great fan of the informal, um, in the in, informal organizational chart. And I think that's a really good place to start is to say, okay, you have your formal hierarchy and your organizational chart. But if you look at the informal, the kind of sources of help and support and knowledge that employees always use, what does that look like? And, and maybe that's mm. the place to start. Apart from anything else, if you, if you want to kind of socialize a community and if you want to get some momentum behind a community, then these top 10 people within your organization surely they're the people to start with because they, they're going to help you or hinder you uh, in, in, in trying to do that. Yeah, no, that's, that's fact. it makes sense to me. That makes uh, perfect sense. And I think we've seen it, especially on major projects, as you mentioned, um, it's not always, it's, I guess it's a sign of leadership that, you know, certain people seem to take on the role, even if it's not their, their, uh, their business title and, and people with common interests and shared goals generally attract others uh, and it's it's interesting you, so you mentioned the informal organizational chart. I thought that was a really good point there. And it doesn't get talked about enough, but these community practices, as you said, we're all kind of in them, whether we're aware of it or not. What if you want to intentionally set up a community practice? Let's say you're in the project space, maybe you're in PMO or project management. You feel like there's, there's, there's a need for yep. uh, a group of project managers to get together, to share ideas, to help each other out. How do you set that up? Is it structured? Is there a way of doing this without, you know, upsetting too many people or spending too much money? Obviously time is money when we talk about projects. What's your view on that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think starting small is, is a good place to start. Again, you know, organizations and, and large organizations they like to they sometimes like to throw money at things and say right well, we'll have this community and practice in place within three months and and everybody will be in it but that's that's really not good value and it's really not going to be sustainable so so kind of starting small mm. and um you know depending on what you're trying to do and the emphasis that you're trying to give to the community is just finding those repeatable activities or those repeatable communications that you can start to put into the diary 
um, and that you can start to capture people's interest. I mean, you know, what you do with the Project Chatter podcast, in a sense, is is yeah. exactly that. You know, at a regular basis, you are having a podcast going out. So you've, people will start to look for that. They'll start to subscribe. They'll start to respond. They'll start to listen. They'll start to share. So it's it's finding that that little sort of um, initial. It's not really a spark because it's a it's a repeating it's a repeating and repeatable activity and kind mm. of building building from there. I mean, there's there, there are a number of different types of of community, um, and some of which I think are amazing. There's a, an organisation in the UK which. Um, Dale, you may have come across a, a Val. I don't know whether you have called uh, PMO Flash Mob. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which them, which yeah. kind of started as as a you know a meetup for PMO people. It recognised that PMO people like like any group, and this is true of project managers as well, always think of themselves as as a bit lonely and you know under undervalued and nobody knows. What my life's like so getting together was a great opportunity for them to kind of share with their peers um and it really started as um you were talking earlier about uh, meeting up in the pub dale as you know the flash mob started by having a, um, a kind of monthly meet meet up in a pub of people in the pmo space talking to each other and then finding subjects that they wanted to hear more about um and i think that very simple, unstructured approach is a really good, good kind of starting point. Keep it simple mm. and see where it kind of takes you. You know, there's a there's a balance and a tension between um, always doing the same thing because people, you know, people do get bored, um, and and the value of actually keeping that repetitive activity, making sure that there is a rhythm and a consistency to what you're doing because people will kind of, um, it's a bit like when you tap your foot to the beat, you suddenly find yourself uh, inadvertently tapping along to the beat. And, and, and that happens when you're, you're doing things in, in a community. So, so I don't think that there's any particular platform you know, you can use one of the social media platforms. You can use a website if you've got a website. And some organizations will obviously be more constrained than others by um, firewalls and and um, and kind of kind of commercial issues or security issues. I mean, some of our members, you know, we work with people like Sellafield or the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority, and and they have communities of practice, but they have to be very self-contained and very careful about how that community yeah. works um in the wider in the wider projects world no that's yeah. great I, I, I and i hear your point it's great if you can find out some of these uh these community practices again there is a lot of them out there as well so if you're looking and you're just interested in maybe just trialing them you know pmo flash mob uh there's project controls group there's a few out there linkedin seems to be uh, a gravitational force towards some of these guys and where they're advertising but yeah, great. Thank you. Mm, yeah, yeah. The other, th the other thing that I, I'm a great fan of, um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that it's always easy, is, is, is just kind of mobilizing, particularly the younger generation, and, and encouraging them to start doing things. So, um, you know, we, 
we, we talked about this um, ideas from experience interview um, and, and we work with our rising stars in the major projects association which is generally they're not necessarily very young um, so they might be in their 30s but it's the sort of emerging professionals um, network um, mm. and and each year we ask them to to go out with their mobile phones and and working with their business mentor to re- to go up to their business mentor and say look I, I want to record my ideas from experience uh, video with you um, and they start to learn actually you as an individual can start to share knowledge and can start to um, interact with people and of course the great thing about that activity is a you know if you're a if you're a senior project person then you're mentoring somebody who's more junior it's very flattering to be interviewed um, it, it's an immediate point of contact and connection between the two of you it's an easy opportunity for sharing some 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 ideas and some kind of basic rules of thumb um and it's fun no absolutely yeah. i i agree, I agree. It's, it's great listening as well um i i like the point you make um about you know repetition mm. you know constantly being there um until it becomes habit yes because you you often see a lot of great initiatives that make sort of a false start if I'm a little bit provocative where, you know, you maybe have the first few and then it sort of dies a death. And I think from, if we break that down, you do need um, a bit of, you do need people with passion to, to really drive it as well. Um, mm. If you're just going to kind of get together and we can have it unstructured in terms of conversations in, in these communities of practice, but you do need passionate unstructured conversation, um, even if it is unstructured, but let's talk a little bit about structure. Hmm. Is there a right size or perhaps guidance on what size a community should be? I mean, you know, yeah. you, you kind of read books sometimes in terms of what the right network is and, you know, what, how many people you should have in organization. Um, and I, I think is it around the 200 mark is sort of ideal. But when it comes to communities of practice, is there something similar that to say actually the right size is dependent on X, Y, Z? Um, or is it not that simple? I honestly don't know the answer to that. <laughs> um, but I, I do think that um, there is no simple answer. I, I tend to think of it more in terms of um, those who are actually within the community of practice um, and those who might be seen as as outside the immediate kind of um, corral of the community. because. Um, you could argue, or you may argue, that the, the community is the people who are chatting amongst each other on a regular basis. But then remember that you're also, you may be bringing individuals in who have a one-off need for some information. So they're using the community as a kind of um, center of excellence. Um, and, and they just come in, can I ask your community for some help? Yeah. Or indeed, they could be an expert who you're bringing into the community to be interviewed, to do a hot seat session, to and 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 so I think you know you can kind of manage not only the immediate community but also the wider, I guess, the circle of influence um, that those members of your community and you have with people outside of the community. And I really don't. I really don't see a problem with that that kind of um, external envelope being fairly permeable, so people can move in and out of 
in and out of the community as they as they need. Um, I don't think, you know, I don't think a community has to be um, all zealots. And and if you're not if you're not at every PMO flash mob meeting, or if you're not if you're not turning up at um, every project controls group meeting, then you're really uh, call yourself a community of practice person. You, I don't think that's, that's the it. point. Though. I think it's it's really what works for the for the individuals. I've also the other thing I found is that um, almost any community of practice, even quite small ones. The generally not just a single amorphous community. They're actually a set of little mini communities within that. Right. Um, and 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 Vala, I, I don't know whether you find this, but but I'm sure you've got, you know, you 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 you'll have people who are really into Monte Carlo or really into to some aspect of of um, project risk or, or some aspect of project controls or, or maybe they use a particular software um, who mm. will naturally gravitate towards each other and will just have little side conversations about that aspect of um, um, cost engineering or whatever it is that is their particular thing within the world of, of um, project controls. No, hundred percent. I think we're we're nodding profusely with you because it's 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 exactly like that. I think you have this kind of hub and spoke arrangement where you might have a general community of practice, which might be a PMO or a project management organization, but then within that you have these little satellite groups that are you know not clicky, but they're obviously very interested in some shared common goals that are very specific around yeah, like you said, uh, maybe a tech thing. I mean, I, I know for a fact that if Dale started talking about digital engineering or BIM or something data related, I'd probably be far more interested than he started talking about Monte Carlo and risk and scheduling practices, because obviously that's, that's what I'm gravitated towards. It's what I like. Um, but you mentioned as well, something there I was going to ask you anyway, but you beat me to it is I get asked a lot about the difference between a center of excellence and a community of practice. Are they one and the same thing? Does one fit in the other or is it very general and, uh, different depending on the situation or the context. I think it's it does it is contextual. Um, as as the name suggests, the the center of excellence is 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 focusing on on best practice. However, if they define that, it may be related to standards. It may be related mm. to consistency or to even aspects of of a particular organization's governance, um, and that may involve a um, a community of practice um, I think the thing is that the community a, a community of practice can be far more because you know we, we talked a bit about the kind of social support and the personal support and the professional support um, mm. and and you get that from a community of practice that you wouldn't necessarily get it from a, a center of excellence um, to my mind a center of excellence you would go to um, in order to to find out what is the what is the standard, what is the expected behaviour, what is the, the the practice that we should be pursuing here, um, and they also may be pushing that out. Whereas the community of practice is um, as much about the community as it is about the the practice. So I think I wouldn't, you know, it's they they there are correlations between the two, and there's an overlap mm. between the two. But I think it's about I guess it's about the purpose of the activity and, and I'd suggest that the purpose of a community practice is some community practice may be about um, project excellence and project standards, um, 
but generally it will be wider than um, excellent. Yeah. No, I, I, I kind of had a similar, when you were talking there, I was kind of thinking, well, maybe it's like the, the center of excellence is more extroverted in a sense that it's kind of out, outbound looking. It's looking at the entire organization perhaps or the project and maybe community practice are a bit more introvert, introspective, you're developing self. Uh, there's a support network behind there. It's more than just the job and a bit more um, kind of connected in terms of specialties, whereas yes. um, the excellence center is probably something that you kind of hang off in terms of a framework. Uh, that's really useful because I think a lot of companies or organizations, maybe the, more of the IT agile type companies will set up centers of excellence, but they won't set up communities of practice. And I always had that question in my head, well, which one's better? And you, what you're saying is they're probably harmonious creatures that live together in this ecosystem and it'd be useful to have both if you could is that right i i don't see why not yes yes i mean i think the center of excellence tends to be as a, as i took from what you were saying tends to be more organizationally focused so it's generally the organization mm. that will set up the center of excellence and they may facilitate or enable the community of practice but the community of practice is about me um, and my peers, it's about personal development um, mm. more perhaps than organizational development. So I, I do think the two can can sit alongside each other. Um, and, and I think it's important to ask yourself exactly these kinds of questions, because if you're if you're trying to set up a center of excellence, you might think, do we want a community of practice? And if we do, what's the difference between the community of practice and the center of excellence? Because I think the minute you start to inject any form of sort of compulsion or, or um, particular structure into a community that is not necessarily the will of the of the members of the community, you're going to kind of um, really strain that community and the bonds between it. Um, so it's important not to think that a community of practice is basically the place for the organisation to control thought on all aspects of project management in the organization yeah and I've, I've certainly seen that so at the start i said you know the advantages and perhaps the disadvantages and that perhaps is some of the perceptions is that if if it's a top-down approach to communities of practice sometimes they won't stick because it's not the thought of the people kind of thing um, and these things need to be spawned or, or generated i guess uh, bottom up to make them a little bit more um authentic and conducive to the ideas um, and they're a little bit like a think tank aren't they so you talk about knowledge management and how we we kind of rope people with shared common visions and goals and uh, skill sets together because they've got interests in that um, and then you expand that by building consistency so if you're if you're looking at communities of practices across anywhere is there like a free or is there access on the internet I imagine there is somewhere to resources for ideas about communities of practices, different types, templates, perhaps you're setting up some type of speaking event or whatever it might be. Is there a place to go for people who are setting these things up? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are a variety of places that you can go. Um, I mean, I tend to use, um, there's, a, there's a website and, and a couple of um, consultants, um, Etienne and Beverly, Wenger trainer or Wenger trainer, I don't know how they pronounce it, they're, they're, they're Americans, um, who are the sort of gurus of community of practice. And there, I find their website really good. Um, there's some great videos there. There's some great kind of resources. 
a little bit academic, but but you know, given my publishing background, sure. I'm kind of quite comfortable with that. Um, yeah. And and I think um, that's a that's a kind of um, good starting point. Um, I think the other thing is is to find um, community of other communities of practice, and and there are there's a there's an organisation in the UK and it's international called CMX, um, and they run a they specialize in in communities and and i think they do something commercial but i only ever interact with them at the sort of um social level and 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 the community level um and they run um meetups and sessions for community of practice um and community of interest as well but community of practice people um Mm. which is it's great because i i meet people you know a lot of communities of practice exist beyond project management <laughs> most communities practice beyond uh, project management and there are some fascinating ones and some fascinating communities of interest so i meet people who you know running huge communities of interest in um, the charitable sector for example um, or people who are running communities of interest for people who have a particular medical condition um, or who have children with a particular medical condition they're trying to get advice and help and gosh it's a great it's a great source of ideas um you know what can you take from that environment and from that context and apply in a very arcane um world that is project management now that's a very interesting take because i did something similar like i used to go to different meetups and and communities like startups and entrepreneurs and finance and it had nothing to do with my actual role but but going and looking at things with a different perspective or with a mm. business hat on or just listening to speakers were completely left of what I'd usually go to see. Uh, just like you said, it, it, it makes you think it's like reading books, you know, it gives you a different yeah. perspective and you're like, and you take that little nugget. It might just be, like you said, you might just get one page out of a book or a chapter, or you might hear a speaker and he says one lasting thing and you say, that was good. I'm going to yeah. keep that somewhere. And, yes. and it's that, that uh, I guess that exposure over time, that, yeah. that helps you bring knowledge and then you regurgitate it. Um, maybe other community of practice, uh, so we're saying don't be too restrictive on your role type. Perhaps go out there and explore a little bit. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. I think one of the one of the strengths and one of the weaknesses of, of any knowledge repository and of the kind of explicit form of, of knowledge in, in many communities of practice or many centers of excellence um, is the fact that, you, you know, you, you, you know you can look up something on project government governance or project sponsorship or... Um, or um, project initiation, and you'll find documents, advice, templates, all of that kind of great stuff. Um, mm. That's a very left-brain activity. Um, and, and I think the vast majority of what we don't know about projects is not in that space. It's, it's more about, you know, I've got five stakeholders on this major project, and, and actually they all have quite an element of competition between them there they, they and they may be competing um a real tension between their different requirements how can i kind of get them to acknowledge this how can i say get them to say yeah we recognize that we are we are effectively competing but for the purposes of this project we need to put that to one side how do i do that mm. and you wouldn't know where to start you might type stakeholders into the but it's not going to help um and and i think the thing about community of practice is, is it's about serendipity. It's about being able to ask questions 
in a human way. I guess AI may help in the future, but questions in a human way. But it's also about um, the sort of Donald Rumsfeld uh, unknown unknowns. You know, you hear somebody talking about something and you think, wow, yeah, actually, I'd never thought about that. I, you know, mm. you, you just don't know where your lack of knowledge comes from. Um, because if, if knowledge, if we all knew what we needed to know, it would be a lot easier. We'd just go onto Google and we'd just type it in and say, I need to know. And Google would tell us exactly what we need to know. But the, the trouble is, in most cases, we don't actually know what it is we need to know. And in some cases, we don't even know that we need to know something we don't know. Uh, <laughs> and, exactly. and, and that's why this sort of um, kind of uh, conversations and the kind of um, uh, rhythm that we've talked about is, is so important because suddenly something pops into your head and you think, wow, I, I went to a meeting uh, of the project controls group or I was talking to and, and somebody said something. And I said, hey, hang on, I've never heard it. What, what's that? Tell me about that. And they told me about it, and it was a revelation. Yeah, 100%. Wow. 100%. I'm with you on that one. Dale, get in here. No, I'm loving this. I, I, <laughs> I can listen to the two of you just carry on. It's, it's great. It's one of the perks, I think, being you know live on on, on the recording. Um, live on the recording? That's the right way to put it. But it's, it's, it's one of the perks to listen to it firsthand. And, and there's, there's so much um, I'm just picking up, just listening to the conversation. Um, but I wanted to also speak a little bit about um, communities of practice and um, inclusivity versus exclusivity. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, we've heard a lot about, you know, diversity of thought and the more inclusive we can, the more the merrier. It's great to, to sort of uh, inspire thought, etc., and instigate um, creativity. But I, I just wondered if there was a specific aim for a community of practice, are there any advantages to being exclusive so that you perhaps only source is there examples of where you only take what you deem the cream of the crop to put them together as a community of practice to solve a specific issue? Is that what a community of practice could be used for? That's a very good question. Um, I think there are a number of different perspectives to that. The, the first is the kind of um, expert source. Um, and there is a, a community um, I can't remember the, I can't remember the exact URL. I'll send you, I'll send you details. And yeah, send, in send the, all the links. We'll uh, them all. Yes, and, please, yeah. and, and it's, it's the place I go where I want real technical advice on knowledge and community. It's the kind of community of practice Bible really. And, and they are just amazing. And, you know, it's a real kind of, um, expert content source um, but I'll only go there for particular types of information yeah. so there's there's definitely that kind of thing um, I think um, the other aspects of, of that is um, within the major projects association we are a members only association and a lot of what we do is members only so our, our events are um, not all of them but certainly our physical events are generally members only um, and, and there's a real benefit to that because that the people who, who, the people who come to those events are the kind of people who are really involved in major projects. Yes. There's an element of um, security and confidentiality so that because it's a, we're a relatively small 
association, you know, 100 organizations. Um, people know the other organizations and they often know a lot of the other members and a lot of the people who would come to an event. So there's a, there's a comfort um, and, a, and a kind of um, confidentiality in that. And, and there's a level of exchange that only happens when you've got trust and rapport and when you feel you can actually say exactly what you're feeling or you can disclose something about your organization and that won't suddenly be all over the internet. So there, there is definitely, you know, that kind of ex exclusive closed environment allows a level of sharing and intimacy and rapport that you don't necessarily get in the wider environment. Um, what we try to do is, is we try to, we try to have our cake and eat it. So <laughs> we have the, the, the closed environment of the membership, and then we have the wider major projects and projects community and the, the sort of membrane or the firewall that exists between the two. Um, and one of my jobs is, is to um, enable knowledge exchange across that firewall to recognize that sometimes um, the association doesn't have the knowledge that they need. Um, they're all project geeks. And sometimes maybe this isn't a project issue. Um, but also to recognize that, that there are people outside of our association who have good, excellent technical knowledge. Um, and sometimes we need that knowledge. And equally, you know, given that one of our aspirations is to improve major projects, we can't just do that by talking amongst ourselves. We, we have a, an evangelizing role. We have to share um, where it's appropriate um, the kind of knowledge and the kind of expertise that we're generating in the wider projects community because we want to influence them, them as well. So I think, yeah, I definitely think there are times and there are opportunities where an exclusive activity is appropriate. Um, and even even if you're running a, a you know a public community practice, that's entirely um, appropriate. And and there are times when you need to kind of involve other people, and and it's really a judgment as to when you do either. Um, I think the other aspect, to be honest, is is you know in, with many communities of practice, there may be a commercial element to that. That, that yeah. actually, if if you really want a lot of value, if you want those intimate confidential conversations you have to subscribe you have to pay to be a member of that community mm. um but you don't have to pay and you can still get some benefit um by being part of the wider community the wider sphere of influence and interacting um outside the firewall as it were i was going to ask a little bit about that because there are different forms of communities of practice and you, you've spoken about a few different websites and we'll, we'll post all of those in, in the show notes so people can go and check that out. But does a sort of a league table exist or perhaps a, a menu? So people go, okay, if I, if I really want to know about this, there's a community of practice that's accessible. You talk about technology and we'll get into that space in a little bit as well about how we make that more accessible globally. Um, but I just wonder, is, is there space where people can go and, and, and assess uh and, and maybe that's a gap. Is that something you're looking to do? Gosh, um, I certainly think in, in, in the kind of just in terms of knowledge, um, one of the things that we try to do because we are a knowledge hub. So we, yeah. we only we don't publish a huge amount of content ourselves. We tend to curate and collate content. So we'll publish an abstract 
and link directly to the external source. Right. So, so, so we're certainly looking to say to people, you know, here's a route through to the knowledge that you need wherever, wherever it, wherever it is. Um, but I think, I think a sort of hierarchy of communities, or I think it's just a matter of personal choice. I really think um, individuals need to work out for themselves which communities work for you. Um, and that's, of course, that's a technical question in terms of what do you need to know? I mean, you're not going to join a project community if you're not interested in projects. Um, mm. But but equally, it's also about the mechanics of that community, you know, the, the, the kind of structure of knowledge sharing and the accessibility of that. You know, you may be working in government, which means that you can't get access to some of the resources because your firewalls don't allow and then, and then, you know, we've talked about this idea of community. It's the social aspect. It's yes. The, it's the, uh, are there people in that community you immediately, with whom you, you immediately develop rapport and people you want to talk to and have a conversation with? Um, because, you know, that's, it's about emotion and relationship as much as it is about intellect and knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's, there's a host of apps that are coming about. Um, Clubhouse is one of them. Um where people are getting on the platform and it's audio only and you can create, you know, communities of practice on there if you want to. I still don't understand. To. I still don't <laughs> understand that app. It, it's a very confusing app. It's got me confused. I don't understand. You'll have yeah, to explain think, it to me. Later. I, I, I think it still needs to evolve as well. I think it's made mm. a start. But um, for those, I mean, I think the jury's still out as to how it evolves. But just taking technology as a um, topic and, and talking about how that might help or hinder communities of practice um, because one aspect is, yes, great. We can, you know, we can speak to anyone anywhere at any time all over the globe. Um, but that social aspect, there's something about being physically present together mm. that you don't get over technology that you may not get over a video call, um, or just, or voice call even. Um, so I just wonder, is there, is there a right balance in which we can be more, um, globally inclusive by still preserving that sort of physical community aspect. Um, because I do believe that, you know, COVID has sort of forced us to pick up additional social skills across technology that we probably didn't previously have. Yes. And so I wonder then, can we take those two elements, merge them together and come up with something that's better than the past? Well, that's a really good question. And, and, I love the way that your mind is going because that's something that's occurred to me as well is to, to say, you know, we've learned a huge amount about working in the virtual space over the last year, year and a half. Um, and, and we've, we've realized them and, and the savvy amongst us have kind of worked out that there, you need to create slightly artificial um, catalysts to enable people to, to network knowledge share just just to make things like zoom or teams or whatever the platform people are using to make it work so that people mm. aren't aren't kind of left cold i mean i i guess it must have been nearly a year ago I, I attended an event i was invited to talk at an event um for an internal community of practice i won't say which organization it was and it was weird because um there was a time when the call was due to start but members of this internal community um, from this organization we're logging in sort of 15 20 minutes earlier and we just sat there on zoom 
in absolute silence, <laughs> which was just weird. So we've learned these kind of techniques. And, and my question, which I think is your question, is actually, are there things that we've learned from this experience we should take back into the physical world? Because there's a tendency, I find it's very easy. I, I do this. I'm sure we all do this. That we just kind of assume we know how to interact with people face to face. You know, when we're in a meeting, um, I'll, give, I'll give you an, a, a very specific example. I do I do quite a lot of work on a platform called Cube, which is a 3D um, immersive virtual platform, um, and you join Cube as an avatar in a digital space, and it allows you to interact and to genuinely collaborate with other avatars so you're not just having a conversation you're actually doing work together oh, that's cool. uh, um, and one of the one of the techniques we use on cube is called spin casting so when you're on cube you've got you know the little space you're in you've got your little avatars and you have a list of the people who are on the, the cube session um, and a regular sort of every 10 or 15 minutes we'll just run down that list we'll run back up that list and and we'll just call out the names and say, Dale, are you still with us? Is that okay? Or can we have a quick one minute, uh, a quick one second um, point from everybody as to how we're going? And it's just a kind of, it's a, like a, an instant um, process review. Um, is this working for you? Is, and we, you know, why don't we do that when we're in meetings? Why don't we sort mm. of say on a regular, you know, you've been in a, in a physical meeting for 15, 20 minutes. Let me, let me just check around the table yeah. or check around the room. Is everybody still on board? Do you want to, and, and actually physically ask everybody rather than just saying, is everybody still on board? And of yeah. course, nobody will dare say no. Just, <laughs> just, you just, what a great technique, very simple technique that you could apply in the physical world. Um, uh, yeah, no, very interesting. And just one more point before I hand to Val. Um, I was just thinking feedback and engagement is quite difficult, I, I find, um, particularly in the online world. As you say, if you're speaking to someone there in front of you, they're kind of almost obliged to give you an answer if you ask them a question. But if you sort of put a question out into the ether, so to speak, you very seldom, well, unless you, you, you've got a um, tight group that are comfortable, if it's wider audience, public, that don't really know each other, people often have this bit of fear and anxiety to sort of raise their head above the parapet, so to speak, and provide their views. You know, they don't want to be the first. And so I was just wondering if they're, for those that are looking to start communities of practice, and particularly if it's going to be online to start off with, or even longer term, are there some techniques you've found in this current world where we can provoke that other than yes. just going directly to people? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, I think I think the the virtual world does give you the opportunity to be more democratic. Um, one of the challenges in the physical world is is I found that you know I've been in a meeting and you're having a conversation about something, and very quickly the conversation will kind of go down a rabbit hole if you're not careful because two or three people will raise a point and immediately people will start talking about that point and you you never get a wider more diverse set of views because you've immediately focus on what the first few people say so i think there's a couple of things um you can use um a miro whiteboard um so you can use a or any virtual whiteboard which has the um the advantage particularly if you if you do 
if you follow the the technique of writing first and talking second so you in say look i really want everybody's view on this on this um can you add your stickies to the whiteboard and the question is xyz how great mm. do you think is project chatter podcast um i'm just going to give you a couple of minutes and you have a couple of minutes of silence where everybody's frantically writing their sticky notes and and you know that everybody has the opportunity to to speak and and share their thoughts and ideas um before you then kind of go into the conversation and the the the, the dialogue um i think the other thing there are other tools that you can use um we use mentimeter um which is which is great which is one of these um engagement softwares um the great thing about mentimeter is that it is um anonymous so if you're asking people if you're sharing a variety of polls in in a variety of forms um people can actually say what they think and and if you're opening that up to to single word responses or indeed to to phrases you know if there was one thing this organization could do better what would it be if people can actually say and you don't know who they are and that's you know that the the power of an- anonymity um mm. particularly with a group that you trust and i know the yeah. group that, um yeah so I, i think there are a variety of ways in which you can a make sure that people's voice gets heard for those who unlike me don't immediately jump in um and and be that you can you can provide a level of anonymity if you need it so that where people are maybe a bit worried about saying something that they might be a bit contentious or they you know that they have a space for doing that and and there are some great mm. tools um the whiteboards or mentimeter to allow both of those things fantastic tips there val so good uh anyone listening to that last five minutes the amount of uh gold nuggets i think jonathan i'm going to say it out loud in the last 60 episodes we've had you've dropped more resources than anyone else uh without prompting so we thank you for that and i'm sure the listeners do too uh there was there was some great things on it i haven't even heard and i i, I consider myself a bit of a geek uh i love the idea about cube it reminds me a little bit of second second life you know this virtual avatar space where perhaps that's where we're going in cryptocurrencies and blockchain and all these interesting uh digital tools that maybe we end up uh you know on on a virtual beach somewhere Jonathan talking about projects who knows uh, i really like that and i think the emphasis back what dale was talking about with this feedback loop and it, you're right a lot of the times this this process doesn't fall back into the physical world where do we ask uh, take take stock and say hang on a second if i just play this back to you you know this is something they do in design thinking but the playback's really important and physically going around and ask, or specifically asking everybody within the group uh, also builds trust i think it's a really good initiative uh, and mm. it's very simple techniques but a lot of people listening might not have heard or emphasized the fact this is an important point of of managing meetings um and i just had some comments before i go into questions uh, around just reading the room so when you're on these zoom and teams community environments when you're trying to build that psychological safety sometimes it is difficult because you do have different personality types you've got introverts and you've got extroverts and you've got people who slow down and talk and think before they speak like dale and then you got motorboats like myself who just are literally speaking in visual images uh it 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 can be uh discomforting for people to to share their ideas and and feel safe um so there were some great techniques that you talked about there um and then the the interesting thing as well 
is around that mentimeter, which I thought that was a really good, really good point uh, too. So one of my favorite tools is Miro and mm. the idea of, of being able to dump all your thoughts before you action them. Um, from, from your perspective then, is there a plan for major projects uh, to go beyond the borders of the UK and explore, I don't know, Australia perhaps as as a kind of the, the interest in, in, in major projects and sharing knowledge and the barriers of perhaps being exclusive to a country start to change? We, we started to see this in Australia. I know we would be in the UK where people are now employing resources interstate and they don't need to be in a physical office and they don't need to be co-located. So we yes. are seeing this shift and people working flexibly. Do we is major projects thinking about the same thing? Um, yes, and and we are in we are doing it de facto. Um, the mm. main one of the main reasons why we've been very UK centric is because um, traditionally, you know, most of our knowledge sharing was done face to face, which meant that if you were paying, if your organisation was paying its membership dues. Unless you could get to London or to Manchester, or you just couldn't get the value of the mm. organisation. There was no point in being a member in Australia because you could never get to the meetings. Um, now that we're doing so much more virtually, um, people are logging in from all over the world. I mean, at this stage, to our open and open events, people can can register and log in from anywhere in the world. Um, so that is 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 definitely happening um there is um there's a great organization in australia um called the iccpm international center for complex project management um which is another association very similar to the major projects association although the the words are different you can still see you know this is the international center of complex project management so so this is this is about complexity we're about complexity um and they do very similar things um we 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 work with them um collaboratively i think um one of the constraints on what we do as an association is because we're so small because we have these 100 members and we we value the intimacy and the confidentiality and the quality that comes of that kind of enclosed relationship. There's a tension between that and, and having a lot of members and having a lot of international members. And, 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 um, and also there's a, a kind of um, tension because there are, there are only six of us who work for the association and four of us are part-time. So our actual physical human resources are, are, are quite limited and we have to make sure that we can serve this the membership um, and make sure that if we do exp- if we were to expand the membership and if the members said they wanted a wider membership would we want to um, to get bigger would we want to have more employees in order to service that membership it's mm. it's really it's I find it really interesting when I look at the association compared to other project management institutions, Let's take PMI as an example. Huge, sprawling, massive organization of, I don't know, 500,000 members worldwide um, where there's, a, there's obviously commercial elements, there's a very strong commercial drive there, and there's also a really strong growth drive. Mm. You know, but by limiting, deliberately limiting your membership to 100, um, you know, there are downsides to that, as we've discussed, um, the kind of access to wider knowledge, but if, on the other hand, if you're on constant growth drive, that, that also 
means that you're a different type of organization and association. So yeah, I personally, I'd love to see us um, doing more internationally um, and maybe finding, finding, again, it would be all dependent on our board and, and the members thinking this was a good thing, but finding maybe a, a kind of model for international membership, which was slightly different from the, the kind of homegrown membership, bearing in mind that you, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're calling in from Sydney or, or Adelaide or Melbourne, that there are going to be um, time zone issues. And there's a physical thing that you, you won't be able to take part in the events that are, that you require a kind of physical, um, physical presence. So, but is there, yeah. is there a, is there a, a service that we could provide that would, engage beyond the uk yeah i'd love to i'd love to see us doing that yeah i think what we've noticed as well like you said whether it's you know being a physical monster like uh, you know the pmi or it's really about just having close collaborations with similar like-minded companies that are doing the same thing if there's a genuine interest to grow groups of communities of practice then perhaps it's not all about being you know the monopoly in the market it's about leveraging you know different uh, organizations all across with which have similar values uh, I think is what you're saying it's it's fantastic to know I might just ask one more question before I flip over to Dale uh, knowledge management if I if I just switch to, to knowledge management because we did have a session didn't we Dale and we talked about it in in quite some depth but we're not the we're not the experts on it we were just hypothesizing and talking and we'd love to know your perspective on knowledge management so you know there's a lot of companies we go to and I'm sure you through your organizations uh, talk about best practices when it comes to re- retrieving, storing, recalling knowledge. Where does a company or an organization start from your perspective? Gosh, another really good question. Um, I, I don't know the, the answer to this. Um, I'm, I'm, I recognize the importance of um, collating and recording and um, creating a repository of knowledge. Um, there are some things that, you know, there are templates, there are other forms of, of explicit knowledge that um, people within the organization and new people need to be able to access. Um, and organizations aren't necessarily very good at that. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's uh, you know, I've worked for organizations in the past where, um, you know, you, the only way to get a piece of knowledge, even quite a specific piece about how do we how do we do this on the database, or is you have to find Joe in accounts who he knows he's really good, and you go and talk to Joe. And you think that's that's rubbish. You know why why is there yeah. not a simple process, or why do we not have processes written down? So I think that kind of simple um, using video or using um, written. Um, written repositories to record how a process should happen or how something should happen so that somebody else can follow that. I think that's really important. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, people use all sorts of, of platforms for doing that. Um, I think on the other hand, I have this theory, which is totally unproven that, that, you know, 80% of knowledge, um, maybe this will change in the future again with AI, but 80% of knowledge will always be contextual and will always be human and and live in somebody's brain um, and so and be very of the moment and timely i mean catherine Pugh, who's another author i 
really look up to talks in terms of knowledge brokers and 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 this idea and and it goes back a bit to this informal network that that often we need somebody who can tell us what something means to us so they can understand what we need and they can look at a piece of knowledge or they can look at a piece of insight and they can say actually if you look at this this is this is what this means they can kind of translate it um mm. into uh, 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 into something that we understand i um way back in the early 1990s when um we were doing when gao were producing a lot of training videos and we used to get castigated by the public sector because most of our training videos were in a sort of quasi private sector business environment and they'd always say why don't you have why don't you why don't you show videos of people doing stuff in the public sector and at one stage we got we managed to acquire um a video it wasn't something we produced ourselves but we we acquired distribution rights to a video which was on total quality was, i think it's called quality first and and it was about uh, a case study of a um local authority leisure center and how they had approached total quality within this leisure center and i naively talked to our customers and said i go guys good news we've got a public sector specific um training video and i was expecting people to say right brilliant right but i i kind of you you may be anticipating what's coming but i kind of wasn't expecting them to say hmm yeah yeah that's good yeah yeah have you got anything that's about housing or that's about <laughs> local authority parking and and i realized that actually the problem was not about the specific context it was about people's ability to assimilate ideas and knowledge from other contexts and to to translate that because mm-hmm. ultimately if i followed that logic what they really were saying is could you come into our organization and create a video which shows us exactly how we should do x y or z and then even then i don't know whether they would have followed it but then we'll be able to recognize what we need to do you know they were working in a different area within the public sector and they couldn't look at the leisure center environment and they'd say oh, actually this 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 is no better than a private sector we we don't understand this um yeah so i i think i think this this idea of um knowledge and best practice i think it's 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 a really really tough one um yeah, yeah. I, I we agree i mean we never really got to the answer either when dal and i were talking about it we spoke to some guys in the data space and they said well benchmarking is uh, in itself is inherently um biased and then if you know dale always mentions this we, we talk about projects being a unique endeavor and then trying to map this out as if you could have some type of knowledge custodian or historian who could just bring up all the facts and apply yes. that to a future project and that would be you know saving you a whole ton of time and effort in terms of scoping the project out is actually really unrealistic unreal- even with probably yeah. machine learning or, or yes. ai yeah, uh, yeah. but it, it it's something that gets thrown around a lot and that's why i wanted to just get your view on it but i yeah. 100% agree with you and and val if you if you look at a you know something like cost engineering um in the cost kind of cost control space amazing what cost engineers can do by analogy mm. they can they can look at a weapon system and they can say well we we know how to do that bit this bit's a bit like that bit so we can actually work out the process and the costs um by analogy for what this new brand new weapon system could cost um but of course the trouble with 
expert systems like that is that you need the decision makers to know where the flaws are in the system. How how reliable, mm. you know, how much data has gone into that cost engineering model? Was it 80% we know or was it 65% we know and the rest we've kind of assimilated from other sources? Um, because otherwise there's there's this, this sense that that is a universal truth. That is true. That is right. Um, and, and that's as dangerous as not having any data at all. A hundred percent as well. And it, it factors into your risk discussion. Yeah. So Monte Carlo's, but you know, that, 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 you know, what weighting is it when you break these things to components? I, I, I imagine you have certain elements like estimation and cost engineering, you can get it down to a fine art, but it's still an art. It's not a science to some degree, especially yes. when you're building, like you said, you know, brand new defense contracts when we've done something we've never done before. Uh, it's software related, you know, so there is inherent dangers when the decision makers aren't really sure of how firm uh, uh, that component list is and and how that, that capture sheet came together. But thanks for your insights. I'll hand over to Dale now. I genuinely believe we could probably spend hours and hours, if not days and weeks, Easy. talking to Jono because he is the knowledge hub. Um, I totally agree with you, Dale. There's yes. so much um, I'm I'm learning from this this podcast. So thank you so well, thank much, you. Thank Jono. You. Thank you. That's very flattering. This does bring us to a very um, fun part of, well, it has been much fun to 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 this point but um it does bring us to a bit of fun um on the podcast where we have a feature and for this i'd like to welcome mr martin carriston our in-house oracle um to take you through it jono hi there martin uh, hi yeah thanks dale i thoroughly enjoyed that um discussion it was it was great i pages of notes there is um i really like the part about informal networks as well um so i think it's something we can all relate to so um thanks a lot for that um so yeah as, as dale said this brings us to a to a new feature uh, it's called defend the indefensible it's where we challenge our guests to defend a ridiculous statement for 30 seconds <laughs> bit of fun it's inspired by some of the <laughs> kind of brilliantly ridiculous things we've all heard over the years um yeah, so if you're if you're willing, if you're if you're keen, we can absolutely. Make a start. Uh, you'll probably find that I really air my prejudice now because you'll say something indefensible. <laughs> I say I I actually agree with that completely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of these old. You can see I'm one of the old crusty people who you know tend to support Trump and. <laughs> 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 okay, right. Let's make a start. So you, you have thirty seconds to defend the following statement. Communities of practice are outdated. Discuss. <laughs> I think without question that they are outdated. Um, I, I would, you know, if if we if we had the technology, I mean, this is, this raises all sorts of kind of right ethical issues and 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 human rights. But you know, we should just have a chip in our brain so we could just connect people, connect, create a kind of physical neural network between people. Um, <laughs> Because I, I think communities of practice are definitely completely flawed and they are kind of outdated and the knowledge within them is immediately outdated because of the speed of change. Um, I think you know, much better would be some, and I suppose the internet does this um, to greater or lesser extent, some sort of system that allowed you just to say, I need an expert who I can be friendly with and who can kind of tell me what I need to know now even though I don't need to know it, um, and and to be able to connect 
to those people to get that in instant piece of information. Um, and, and recording a lot of that information is pretty irrelevant because it's contextual and because it's, it's subject to data running out of relevance and, and to new information coming in. That's one of the challenges with repositories is, is you, you know, your best practice of today or your insight of today is your don't ever do that of tomorrow um, as we learn more or as the, the environment in which we're working changes. So I, I definitely think communities of practice are outdated, outmoded, um, they're kind of rather wow. crude. Um, Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot for that. Just a bit over 30 seconds, but you can All see right. the passion there. <laughs> you, start you start me going. You start me going. Thanks a lot yeah. for that. Yes. We actually needed a sort of a sound effect for a round of applause from a crowd because that was a <laughs> That's after it, yeah. we spent the best part of an hour talking about how you know how we should take advantage of this. You absolutely defended that indefensible statement. So thank you for being Brilliant. such a great sport. Uh, it was my pleasure. Yeah, it's been yes. amazing. And um, we would definitely like to have you back on a, a future podcast just to see how things develop with technology sure. and once we're out of yeah. COVID, et cetera. And, yeah. and perhaps there's some things we, we could contribute as well from the, from the Project Chatter perspective to help Thank share. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. Yes. But it has yes. been an absolute pleasure. Um, I, I wonder, are there any final thoughts you want to leave our listeners with? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess... We talked about this at the beginning. Um, I, I, I'm not sure it was when we were recording, but but I think it was that that you know project chatter is is part of a community of practice, and and you know in my kind of rant about how communities of practice are outmoded, in in a sense, project chatter you're doing what what I'm advocating we should be doing, which is just um, finding people who have knowledge and and getting them to talk about it and to kind of inject it and to, to share it with other people and doing so in a way that is immediately um, engaging and interesting and, and relevant. Um, I mean, the great thing about the Project Chatter podcast is I suggest that nobody nobody's going to listen to the Project Chatter podcast because they have to. Um, it's mm. it's something that people listen to because they want to, which takes us back to this idea of of you know books that started being technical sources of knowledge and suddenly became um, business nonfiction. I read a book about I don't know knowledge management because I really enjoy the experience of reading and the ideas that come out of it, um, and that's that's kind of where we need to get to um, is, is is that sense of pleasure and and no sense of no hang-ups no kind of worries about asking for help or knowledge um and and encouraging that curiosity fantastic thank you so much and we we do need to give a special shout out to tim ackland uh, who put us in touch with you yeah. john o tim appeared on episode 44 talking about systems engineering versus project management so go and have go and check that one out but thanks to tim for for putting us thanks, in tim. touch val any final thoughts no, I think, uh, like you said, we could talk to Jonathan for hours on end. I think you're one of the easiest people to speak to, and you did such a great job at knowledge sharing, uh, some great tips, some great websites, some resources. So you, you might want to listen to this one in slow time if you can. Uh, again, thanks for your time. Do keep in touch. We'd love to keep networking and collaborating and for you to join our community of practice at the Project Chatter. So thanks for your time. So, folks, that is all the time we have for 
uh, on this episode, but it doesn't have to stop here. Support our charities and access blogs at projectchatterpodcast.com. Don't forget to hit subscribe on our YouTube channel and your favorite pod- podcast player so you don't miss the next one. A massive thank you to our guests, Mr. Jonathan Norman, and thank you all for listening. Till next time, we say stay safe, be disruptive, and have fun doing it. From me, Val, and Martin, it's bye for now. Thank you ever so much. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the participating individuals and not necessarily to the individual's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. Additionally, any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual.